This is the Good Things Guy podcast with myself, Brendan DeCute, South Africa's very own Good Things Guy. I'm on a mission to change what the world pays attention to. I truly believe that there's good news all around us, and I spend my time hunting down and reporting on the best good news stories from South Africa and the world. In the Good Things Guy podcast, you'll meet these everyday heroes and hear their incredible stories. It's been over 440 days since the pandemic really took hold of South Africa. Yep, that's how long it's been since the country went into our initial lockdown. It's crazy just saying those numbers out loud. But we have made massive strides and are now in a second phase of our vaccination program in South Africa. For me, vaccinations are the next step in getting back to some sort of normal. What do they call it? The new normal. But for some... They are still quite skeptical. So I've invited Dr. Saul Johnson to join us in a discussion about vaccines today. Dr. Johnson has a medical degree from WITS and a master's degree in epidemiology from the Columbia University in New York. He lectures extensively on epidemiology and research methodology and has worked as a doctor, epidemiologist, researcher, and project manager in various African countries. Doc, welcome to the Good Things Guy Jackpot. Uh, hi, Brett. Lovely to be with you this morning. A very important chat that I want to have around vaccines and vaccinations in South Africa. But I think first off, before we even get into that, could you explain to me and to the listeners what epidemiology actually is? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. And, uh, and, you know, before this pandemic, I used to get asked that a lot. People used to say, is it about skin diseases? And I'd say, no, that's dermatology. Um, epidemiology is the study of diseases. Uh, it's about health research. There are lots of different types of epidemiologists. Uh, I'm an infectious diseases epidemiologist. That's, I've spent most of my career studying and looking at uh, HIV and how we can better treat HIV and improve HIV programs. So that's, that's what we do as epidemiologists. Very interesting and, and obviously a very important role to play during this COVID-19 pandemic. Sure, you know, and, and epidemiologists uh, have been involved from the beginning in trying to understand this disease, where it comes from, how it spreads, you know, how to prevent it, how to treat it. Uh, all of that falls in many ways under, under epidemiology. And I think some of the in, initial confusion around different recommendations have come up, you know, and, and that has led to some of the, the skepticism that you see among people. But that's because, you know, as we've learned more, the evidence has changed, and that's absolutely normal. And what happens in a very fast evolving pandemic is we learn more. And as we learn more, we're able to, you know, say more about what we can do to prevent this and, and, and treat it. So here we are. I, I did mention that it's been 440 days, plus minus, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, that we've really faced this pandemic firsthand in the country. It, it's, it was the 26th of March, 2020, when we went into the initial lockdown. Have we made strides? Have we learned more about the virus? Are we in a better position to understanding COVID-19 than we were 440 days ago? You know, it's been remarkable, actually, how quickly we've learned both from really since, since this was identified in China. Within two weeks, China had, had identified the virus, had worked out the, the genome of it, and you know, we now know pretty much how it spread. You know, we've learned a lot. Unfortunately, you know, it's still spreading. We, we're in the third wave in South Africa, unfortunately. We know how to prevent it, right? If people um, wear their masks and they avoid lots of indoor places where people get together, that, that's how it spreads. It's, a, it's spread through the air from people 
coughing or sneezing or talking and spreading this virus. So we, we you know, we've got a very good, uh, we've got a very good idea of how to prevent it. And of course, we'll get to the vaccines. But, you know, unfortunately, people have to go out and earn a living. And I, I'm fully sympathetic to that. And so we're constantly weighing up, you know, the economic uh, consequences of, of sort of shutting down versus the need to, to stop this thing from spreading. I guess that's that fine balancing act. And it's, um, it's a difficult, complex situation when you're weighing up lives against the economy. And I can say that a week ago, I had my flag held high to support the economy and get everybody going again. But within a couple of days, I had a friend pass away and then it all becomes real again. And then you go, hold on, this thing is real and what we're facing is serious and we need to protect everybody so that we can all get through this at the end of the day. Yeah, it's a, you know, it is a hard balance. I'm not somebody who comes down hard on the government or the Department of Health. These things are complicated and countries all around the world are struggling with this. You know, if you're a, a rich country like Australia, New Zealand, in a, a relatively small on an island, you can easily lock down, lock your borders. We can't do that. We're not in a position to do that. And, and we could face you know, severe consequences for many, many people, you know, who would face um, economic hardship and hunger. So we have to weigh that up very carefully. And I, and I absolutely appreciate that. But at the same time, you know, what is the cost to lives that are going to be lost through this pandemic? And we've already as a country probably lost 150,000 lives. And when I look at, for example, you know, yesterday, uh, new cases, uh, around eight, eight and a half thousand new cases, you know, for me, that's not just a number. I work that out in my head. And I think, let's say 10% of those might need to be sitting in hospital. So that's 800 people who are going to have to go off to hospital. One or 2% of those people may die. That's uh, 150 people, let's say, may end up losing their lives. Those are our parents and people we know, grandparents, friends. It's a tragedy, you know, Brenton. It's hard to, to watch it happening in front of our eyes. Doctor, it was during phase two, I think, that wave two, when people on social media started saying uh, something to the likes of when the numbers become names, that's when it becomes real. And I think that's the hard tragedy that we face. Um, I want to talk about what we're here for, because that's that's the next step in, in protecting society, right? The vaccines. This is something that is another, what can I say, another piece of armor in our fight against COVID-19. Brent, I mean, it's a a remarkable story, you know, the COVID vaccine, I'll own up, I was one of the people that said, we're not going to have a vaccine for a couple of years. It's just going to take too long. The first vaccines may not work, you know, because I've seen this happening for many diseases. For HIV, we don't have a vaccine yet. For malaria, many, many decades, we've been struggling to get a vaccine. But for COVID, through a massive international effort and through a confluence of lots of different factors, We've come up with not just one, but a number of very highly effective and safe vaccines. It is a fantastic global story, as, as good as anything. You know, in, in 10 or 20 years' time, we'll look back and say, this was one of the great achievements of humankind to have done this. I wish we could get more. I wish we could vaccinate people faster. But the development of these vaccines is just such a fantastic story. It gives me goosebumps hearing someone speak so positively and highly of something that I believe is incredibly life-saving and will allow us, I don't want to say to get to a normal or a new normal or whatever those words are, but it is a huge step in getting society back to where we need to be. My question, especially here in South Africa, is why do we have such a low acceptance of many people, especially on social media, who like to voice their opinion against vaccines? 
Yeah, you know, Brent, you of all people should know that what you see on social media doesn't necessarily reflect reality. So um, thank goodness sometimes, I have to say. Um, you know, I think from all the studies I've seen, there probably are at least 70% of South Africans who would get vaccinated quite readily. Um, maybe 30% or less are, are resistant. So as I say, I think what you see on social media doesn't represent the vast majority of South Africans who I think are, are keen to get vaccinated. And we've certainly seen as the program has rolled out, you know, lots of people wanting to come forward. I, I think the demand for vaccines at the moment is outstripping our, our supply of them. Um, but yeah, you know, there are, there are myths out there and, and, and I think we need to take those seriously. There are real concerns that people have had. Uh, let me just address the one thing, if I may, on how did we get to, to develop these, you know, so quickly. 100%. And I think, I think that was my next sort of step in our interview today, was to talk about these myths that people have. And one of them is I mean, exactly where we're going to now, is how did uh, the vaccines get crafted or created or, or made so quickly, quote unquote? Yeah. So the first thing to say is that um, although this is a new virus, it comes from a family of viruses that we have seen before many times. Part of it is the virus that causes the common cold. There is a coronavirus that causes us to have the cold. But we have seen over the last 10 or 15 years outbreaks of new coronaviruses. And there were things that people might have heard called MERS and SARS, which were outbreaks, not of the one we've got now, but of, uh, of similar coronaviruses. What this meant is that there were people working on vaccines against coronaviruses. A, because they started when these other ones had come up, but also because, because we've seen these other ones, we thought, hold on a second, there might be an, a, a new one and we, we should be ready for it. So it wasn't like at the end of, uh, of 2019, beginning of 2020, people suddenly started from scratch. A lot of scientists were already working on a vaccine against coronaviruses. So when this new one, which we call SARS-CoV-2, when that was discovered, when it started uh, spreading from country to country, we could ramp up those techniques quite dramatically. So that's the first thing. We really had uh, a background in it. People were working on it. The second thing is what often takes time is to test these, via, these vaccines because you need enough people getting infected to know whether these uh, vaccines work or not. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we were in the middle of a pandemic. There were so many people getting infected all the time that we could test these vaccines really quickly because it was easy to get the numbers. We were able to tell within a few months that these vaccines were highly effective. So all of that came together. Obviously, countries like the US, the UK, the Gates Foundation put in a lot of money to support these vaccines, probably more than have ever gone into a type of initiative like this. And so we were able to get vaccines turned out very quickly. So I just, I just want to mention two things here that I know as fact. First, the testing phase that you're talking about, that wasn't pushed onto the population. And you can tell me if I'm wrong now, but it was actually volunteers, right? That said, I'm putting my hand up and you can test on me. Clinical trials are always voluntary. And I've been involved in, in clinical trials for many, many years. And, and those are always voluntary. So, so you go into a place, you ask people to volunteer to be vaccinated. And then what is important is then those people either get the vaccine or they get a dummy product. So nobody knows who's getting a real vaccine, who's getting what we call a placebo, which is a dummy product. And that's the only way to tell when you compare the people who got the real vaccine and the dummy product 
whether it's actually the vaccine that works. And all the vaccines that we're using today have gone through that process in a very rigorous way. Hmm, this is absolutely fascinating. All right, so I have I have three other myths that I'm going to throw at you, um, and I sure. want you I want you to sort of explain if you can. So first off, can I get COVID nineteen from the vaccine? Right, absolutely not. There are vaccines out there, uh, not COVID ones. There are other ones that use a, a, a what we call a live attenuated virus. That is an actual virus virus that we weaken. None of the COVID, uh, the COVID vaccines use that technology. All of these COVID vaccines take a bit of either the actual piece of this virus or what's more likely is they put a little bit of the genetic code into our bodies and our own cells make bits of virus, little bits, little pieces that they show to our, our immune system. And then our immune system says, hold on, I'm seeing bits of this virus. I'm going to make an immune response to these bits of virus. Uh, and then when I actually see actual COVID, I have that memory. My, that's how our immune, our immune system works. We keep that memory. We've seen this before. We can rapidly mount a defense and, and stop ourselves getting sick. And that's, that is the good news around the vaccines. People who've been vaccinated don't end up very sick and they don't end up in hospital. That, there's no question about that. Second question is, will a vaccine alter my DNA? Right, so this is, you know, this where this comes from is around one of the vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna use something called uh, mRNA technology. So let's just be clear, this is not DNA. This is a, a step that uh, takes place in our cells where this is part of the cell machinery which helps to make proteins, which is what, what DNA does. And so because people have seen these terms and it sounds like DNA, they think that, that somehow these vaccines can influence how your DNA works or that bits of the virus are going to end up in your DNA. All that happens is that these vaccines instruct your cells to make bits of, of the viral proteins. So they, they tell your cells to make bits of the virus. That's all they do. It never goes anywhere near your actual DNA and doesn't end up in your DNA. So that is a Brent, an absolute myth, and that is that is just it's just impossible for that to actually happen. What was the show? Mythbusters. That is a myth debunked, is what, what I think they used to say. Complete bust. We bust, bust that myth. We bust that myth. The last question that I have, and it's one that comes up very often, especially by people who don't want the vaccine, and that is the fact that when I've had the vaccine, why do I still need to wear my mask and practice social distancing? Why is that still in effect, even though I've had the vaccine? Sure. And that's, that's a complicated one. You know, that, that is quite a difficult one. Let me put it this way. What we know for sure is that these vaccines, because of what I described to you, how they work, they help your immune system to recognize COVID. And so the next time you see COVID, your body will mount a good, strong immune response. What we are never entirely sure is, will it stop you from getting COVID, actually getting infected with COVID, and possibly passing COVID on to other people? I think what we've seen is where countries have vaccinated a very high percentage of their population, over 50% or even higher, 60-70%, it seems like the vaccines do stop this virus from passing around altogether. But until you get to that level, it is still possible for you to get infected and to pass on that virus to other people, even if you're not going to get sick. And if you do get sick, you might get sick very mildly. 
but you won't get so sick that you'll end up in hospital or that the virus will kill you. So that is why, why are we saying to people, you know, you still have to be careful because it is possible that you can still pass this on. So, so let's say you've been vaccinated, Brent, and you may be protected from a severe disease, but you're living with somebody, let's say with diabetes. What would be terrible if you pass COVID on to somebody who happens to be a diabetic in your household and that person gets really sick or, or God forbid dies, you know, and you don't want to be the cause of that. So hopefully that we'll get to a point where we have vaccinated enough people and we stop this virus from circulating in our communities. And then everybody can stop wearing masks and we can go back to as close as normal as, you know, we were before. But we, unfortunately, we, we, we're just not yet at that point. So for me, and, and I need to put this in an underlined heading here, is that I am not an expert, and this is a complete opinion that I'm going to push forward. But the reality is that we won't be able to tell who's had the vaccine and who hasn't had the vaccine. So wearing masks is quite important from that perspective. Because imagine if we all of a sudden said, okay, cool, you've got the vaccination, take your mask off. And then people who choose not to be vaccinated, take their masks off. And then the virus will just spread even more. So for me, I feel almost like we need to have all these preventable measures in place until we do get to some sort of herd immunity. And that leads me to my, ne my next question. What yes, is yes. herd immunity? Right. So, so first of all, Brent, I, I agree with you completely. Because we don't know who's been vaccinated, people should just especially out in public or in, in those confined spaces, people should continue to wear their masks because we just don't know who's been vaccinated. I agree. Herd immunity is this idea that, you know, once enough people in a population are immune, either through natural immunity or through vaccination, then the virus just doesn't have enough people to spread. Um, it came originally, in fact, from, from farming and agriculture when they were vaccinating cows is why it's called herd immunity, actually, because um, we, don't, we don't consider people like cattle. But that's the idea, is that you don't have to vaccinate 100% of anybody, you know, in a population. You can vaccinate enough people to stop the virus from circulating. And that's what we're aiming for. And as I said before, you know, it looks like you have to hit levels of around 70%, actually, to start to approach herd immunity. That, that's, as countries have rolled out this vaccine, you know, that does seem to be the number at which you, you really start seeing uh, the virus not being able to circulate uh, anymore. So right now in South Africa, we're vaccinating the population that is over 60. Those are the South Africans that are allowed to register and can start yes. with this vaccination rollout. What does that mean for the rest of the country? I mean, we're sort of waiting for, and as you said, as we get more vaccines, um, we would be able to start to administer more. But for the rest of us, what should we, do, we be doing right now? Yes, you know, so the good news is that we really are ramping up our vaccinations dramatically. And I know you post about the numbers and I also look at the numbers. So, you know, we we up to 90,000 vac vaccinations a day and hopefully we'll go to 100 and more, 100,000. So I'm hoping that we can vaccinate that over 60 population, you know, within the next month or so. Um, and obviously those people are highly vulnerable they do have the worst impact of this virus in terms of, of severe illness and death. So, you know, that's entirely appropriate. But having said that, yeah, you know, we're in the third wave. And so 
all I can say is, you know, until we're able to vaccinate everybody else, which, you know, we're hoping by the end of the year we'll be close to that. People must just be really careful. And I know it's been a long haul. Everybody's really tired. I get it. You know, I get it. With I see that myself in my family. But our hospitals are rapidly filling up again um, and lots of people are dying again. And it's, the message just has to be if you can work from home, if you can minimize contact outside of your immediate family, when you do go out, make sure you're wearing your mask and make sure you're in well-ventilated places, even though that is tough during winter. That has to be a priority for everybody. You know, that is just my plea to everybody out there. Doc, I want to thank you for your time today. I know you're a busy man and I want to thank you for busting some of those myths and for chatting to us about vaccines. I think the more we talk about it, the more we can dispel some of these um, ideas and narratives that have been created somehow. I want to thank you for the work that you have done all your life. It's so important and it's helping us face a pandemic like this and get through it. One of the things that I that I say in most of my messaging on, on social media platforms is the only way we'll get through this is together and if together means wearing masks social distancing perhaps not seeing each other as much as we used to then that's the way we do it together yeah i know unfortunately that is the case and brent thank you so much for having me on your podcast and allowing me to come and discuss these things and and absolutely happy to come back anytime if if more issues arise you are incredible thank you doctor and to all the listeners Let's keep it safe. Let's keep it tidy. Let's get through this together. And let's, let's get to that point where we can all get vaccines and, and move forward to some sort of new normal. I want to wish you guys only good things. I'm Brent Lindeke, South Africa's very own Good Things Guy. And you've been listening to Good Things Guy, a jackpot podcast. For more episodes or to subscribe, rate or review my podcast, go to iTunes, Iona FM or Google Podcasts. Be kinder than necessary to yourself and each other. Thanks and only good things.